Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Well, as we stand and uh, before we begin, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray very much that what we've just sung uh, would indeed uh, be written on our hearts tonight, that all we have is Christ. We pray very much he would strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus tonight, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Please do sit down, and uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 22, you find it on page uh, 1057 of the Church Bibles. Um, Our passage begins Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. 
Now, back in the the middle of the Second World War, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote one of his most ingenious uh, books. It's called The The Screwtape Letters. And uh, you may have come across this before. They're imaginary letters from a a senior devil called Screwtape uh, to his nephew, nephew, a junior devil called Wormwood. And uh, it's about Screwtape training his nephew in the art of deception. And now there's a very striking moment very early on in the book when Screwtape is describing how he turned around a situation when, when a man, an ardent atheist, was sitting in a library and uh, the man was beginning a chain of thoughts that might have led him to God. That man was just beginning to wonder if there might be something more to the universe than meets the eye. So Screwtape acted quickly. He acted quickly and prompted the man to go and find some lunch. And uh, this is what he writes next. Uh, Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he'd reached the bottom of the steps, I'd got him into the unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he's shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Screwtape calls this method the pressure of the ordinary, and it's a much more dangerous weapon in his hands than any kind of argument or reasoning. Uh, But those of us who have had a much longer glimpse than that fleeting thought in a library, a much longer glimpse of the deeper reality we live in, uh, are also vulnerable to that same kind of pressure, the pressure of the ordinary. In fact, disciples of Jesus have always been vulnerable to the pressure of the ordinary. Uh, Just look back in your Bibles to Jesus' teaching at his disciples at the end of uh, chapter 21. Uh, We looked at this uh, last week. At the end of chapter 21, let me just read from verse 34. Be careful, says Jesus, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day ahead will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Be ready for that day. Don't get distracted by the anxieties of life. Um, I guess drinking parties and and drunkenness, we we can see that those are are dangerous things for us as Christians, Uh, but in a sort of obvious kind of way, they, they, they shut off our ability to think clearly But those other things, the anxieties of life, the pressures of the ordinary, they're also dangerous. And I guess even more so because, well, they're just so ordinary. And as I look out tonight, uh, I know that statistically speaking, and it's hard to think about this, but statistically speaking, humanly speaking, a frighteningly large proportion of us are likely to drift from the faith because of that one thing, because of the pressures of the ordinary. It won't be a sudden thing. It won't be a dramatic thing, probably. But we'll get so caught up in the distracting subplot of the ordinary, the everyday pressures of life, 
that we'll forget everything else. We'll forget the bigger story. We'll forget the deeper realities. And Jesus warns us, we're all vulnerable. I certainly know that I am. Well, if the big danger is forgetting, then our passage tonight uh, should be a, a good antidote. It should point us to the solution. This is a passage all about remembering. It's the big theme of this passage. In fact, it's the context in which these events that we read about is set. Uh, Luke, the, the writer of this gospel, reminds us no less than six times that all this happens at the time of the Passover festival. It's there in verses 1, 7, 8, 11, 13, 15. He couldn't make it clearer. This is in a setting where the people are remembering. The Passover was an annual time of collective remembering as the nation remembered their identity as God's treasured people and what God did to rescue them from slavery. And very strikingly, what Jesus does in this setting is to transform that remembering for his disciples into an an act of remembrance focused on himself. Uh, It's over in verse 19, which we'll look at later. Do this, says Jesus, in remembrance of me. And uh, we'll see what Luke is doing here. It's really quite amazing when we look closely. There's much more in many parts of this passage than at first meets the eye. Uh, And as he lays out the events leading up to Jesus' death, Luke just wants us to be able to see below the surface of what's happening, to remember the reality of what Jesus is going to do. What is he going to do? Well, nothing less than engage in a cosmic battle against Satan, pouring out his life to save his people. Why is Luke doing this? Well, so that, so that we can look below the surface of our lives too. Remembering the danger we're in, but remembering who's in control, and remembering to remember, and remembering to remember Jesus, the way he teaches us to remember him. So, lots of remembering tonight. It's very appropriate that we're doing this on Remembrance Sunday, although what we're looking at is a slightly different kind of Remembering, And the first thing to remember is this. is verses 1 through to 6. Remember the danger we're in. Remember the danger we're in. Or to put it another way, remember that there's a war on. And in that war, remember who's out to get us. I guess on the surface, um, what happens in verses 1 to 6 isn't, isn't so unusual. It's the kind of sleazy uh, politics that uh, must have happened all the time right across the Roman Empire. And of course, it's not as if we're unfamiliar with, sle- with sleazy politics today. Uh, what was going on were the chief priests and the teachers, uh, the authorities, if you like, the establishment. They're, they've been bruised by their encounter with Jesus in the temple, and they want to get rid of him. This is what we saw earlier in this series in Luke's Gospel, that they have been publicly shamed. Their status has been undermined. Their authority has been challenged. Um, and they... They want to get rid of him. Not that their authority over the people was very strong, as we're reminded again here in verse 2, just how afraid of the people they are. They don't actually have sufficient authority to arrest Jesus without inciting the crowd against them. So they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus secretly. And the answer to their problem comes in the form of a betrayer. In exchange for money, Judas, one of the twelve, 
will find a way to hand him over to them. So that's all on the surface, but under the surface there's much more going on here. And you can see Luke flags it up for us very clearly in verse 3. This is what was going on under the surface. Then Satan entered Judas. This tells us what's really going on. The Satan is the adversary, the accuser, the enemy of God. He is evil personified. His great desire is to ruin and destroy and break things apart. And he's therefore engaged in a cosmic battle with God and with Jesus, whose great desire, of course, is to save and to recreate and to restore things and bring blessing. And in this cosmic battle, uh, Judas is, if you like, collateral damage. In other words, Judas here stands as an example of the kind of danger Jesus warned about at the end of chapter 1. He's someone who's seduced away from Jesus uh, by greed in his case. And uh, we'll see over in verse 22, Jesus warns again the kind of outcome from that kind of betrayal. Judas is one who won't stand on that final day. Jesus says this, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Now you may be thinking at this point, why are you telling me this? Why all this stuff about Satan and cosmic battles and warning me not to be like Judas? It all sounds a a bit kind of overdramatic. You know, I'm not about to be taken over by evil. I really, really don't want to be like Judas. But if you're thinking that way, watch out. Watch out. I think this is probably the the great genius of C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Satan, you see, works through the ordinary, the everyday, the domestic details of life. Uh, We find suddenly that the narrative of our lives is is taking on a a life of of its own. And suddenly the life we want to be living no longer seems to fit very well with the story God wants for us. You know, the one that's centered around Jesus. Uh, It doesn't match anymore, and so we pull away. We disengage. We forget those deeper realities. We forget the bigger story. That's the warning and the challenge in this passage. Uh, The rest of it, I hope, we'll find much more encouraging. Take the next section. This is uh, verses 7 through to 13. It may well be that there's a war on, and a very dangerous war at that, but now let's remember who's in control, just who's in control. Let's remember who's in control. Now, On the surface, again, I guess this doesn't look very spectacular. It's just a a group of friends. Uh, They're trying to find a place to eat during a a busy festival. You know what it's like when you go on holiday uh, to the Mediterranean. It's a Mediterranean country. Almost every other day is a public holiday and all the restaurants get booked out and you wander around for hours and hours getting more and more hungry and grumpy or, I don't know, maybe that's just me and my family. Uh, This is slightly different, I guess. It's got a a bit of an edge to it and that this particular group of friends are are wanted by the authorities. Uh, Adds a little, a bit of an extra tension, I guess. So it all has to be rather secretive and, and coded. But on the surface, this does seem to be about finding somewhere safe to meet and eat. 
But we might well wonder, if that's all that's going on here, why has Luke included this? Why has Luke included all these little details? He doesn't seem to waste his words on other trivial details in his gospel. I think we are encouraged to look under the surface again. It is very striking, isn't it? It's very remarkable that Jesus knows so much about what's going to happen. You know, the man with the water jar, uh, that the particular house that the man is going to enter. Uh, he knows how the owner is going to respond. And it's remarkable, too, how it all works out so perfectly. Jesus sends them off, says, go and serve like this. Uh, and they listen to his words, and they do it, and they get there, and it's all fine. Now, it's true that Luke doesn't tell us how Jesus knows all these things. Is it, has it all been prearranged? Is, uh, is Jesus' knowledge supernatural? I suspect that that is the case. But it doesn't really matter. The point is that over all these things, Jesus is in control. By extension, he's in control of all the events leading up to his death. And what that means is that as he's in control even of these little things on the way to the Passover meal, uh, Luke is able to build this picture of what it looks like to be one of his disciples. Peter and John, his, if you like, representative disciples, are mentioned by name. And they're the ones who are sent out to serve the group. They go and do what they're told to do. They go and serve. And uh, Jesus, Jesus gets them to where he wants them to be. He's the one in control. They can trust him. And so it indeed actually is a great encouragement for us too in the midst of the battle. Jesus is still in control. Follow him. Trust him. And he will get us to where he wants us. But get us where exactly? Well, that takes us, I guess, to what's the main act in our passage Uh, The Passover meal itself, Uh, this is verses uh, 14 through to 23, and uh, more things for us to remember here this time, remembering to remember Jesus the way he teaches us to remember, remembering to remember Jesus the way he teaches us to remember. I suppose again on the surface, it's, it's nothing spectacular, it's just a group of friends enjoying a Passover meal together. Uh, This would have involved eating unleavened bread and the the Passover lamb uh, roasted with bitter herbs. Uh, These were all props, if you like, prompts, reminders for retelling the story of the Exodus to one another. Uh, The story of when the Lord rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and protected them from the death that came upon every household. The Passover lamb was particularly significant in this. The blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintels of the houses of the people brought the angel of the Lord to pass over that house. That's what they're remembering. By the time of Jesus, the meal also traditionally included drinking four cups of wine. Just two of them are mentioned here in this passage. The wine was red wine to symbolize the blood in the Exodus narrative. And each of the cups marked a different stage in the story. Or again on the surface, I guess we, and in the light of what happens next to Jesus, we could look at it another way. This is like like the meal of a prisoner on death row. The, The last meal of a prisoner before his execution. 
is one last sad and poignant moment. And then he dies. And then that's it. It's the end of that story. But once again, Luke and his writing and his account of the Last Supper is helping us to look under the surface of what's to come, of what's going on and what's to come. And he will help us, in fact, to interpret those events rightly. And most especially that the death of Jesus is emphatically not the end of the story. And uh, two ways in particular I think Luke helps us here. Uh, point is first, pointing us again to the far future. Uh, the day Jesus was talking about in the previous chapter, when he, the Son of Man, will come again with power and great glory. That's the first thing he does. And then he also points us, points us to the reason, the only reason, that we'll be able to stand before him on that day. I suspect it's uh, possible the first of those may be the less familiar, the most striking thing here. Uh, Jesus' words in verses 15 through to 18 encourage us to remember this, to remember how much Jesus longs to eat with us in the kingdom of God. Uh, Let me read from verse 15. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Those are really quite strong words. We could put it this, this, this way. Uh, with a strong desire, I have strongly desired to eat this Passover with you, says Jesus, before I suffer. And as he says that, he knows that this Passover that he's eating with his disciples is, is just a foretaste. It's just a foretaste of something much greater in the future. The meal that, if you like, he's really looking forward to. Uh, the one that he's going to enjoy with his disciples, and now that includes us, in the new heavens and the new earth, when the kingdom of God is finally and fully established forever. That's what he's, that's what he's looking forward to. That's what he's pointing us to. And just look at how he's indeed holding back in celebrating until that task is completed. When that he's waiting until all of his disciples across all of history are gathered in. Verse 18, For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I'll say I found this a very striking thought as I've been preparing this. Uh, you see, in our, most, in our more honest moments, uh, just as we were confessing together earlier, uh, we know that we're not actually very likable. We might sometimes like to think of ourselves that way, but not actually very likable. You know, there's the sorts of uh, friends and, or relatives or neighbors who are just a bit annoying, the sort of get only get invited to things grudgingly out of a sense of duty. Well, that's all of us to some extent. And I think that's probably how we think of Jesus, inviting us to eat with him in the kingdom of God. We imagine that he does it grudgingly and then sits and talks and eats and listens with gritted teeth, really wishing he was somewhere else. But look again at what Jesus actually says here, verse 15. 
This is what he said to his disciples at, at that time. And it applies to the future meal as well. I have eagerly desired to eat with you. And I wonder, do we think about him that way? Do we think about the future that way? That he really, 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 genuinely, definitely, authentically wants us to be there and wants to be with us. I suspect we don't, but it's an amazing thought. And if we ever doubted how much he wants us to be there, the very next and much more familiar verses help us to remember what he's had to do to make it all happen. This is what he's had to do had to do to make it all happen. Let me read them to you again. This is from verse 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And it's these words that are so helpful, so helpful in interpreting rightly the death Jesus is about to die. Remember, Jesus has engaged in a cosmic battle with Satan on behalf of his disciples. And remember, Satan's great desire is to kill and destroy and break apart. And remember, Satan's greatest weapon against Jesus' disciples is their sin. Their sin means they deserve to die. If it was just up to them and their sin, that would be their destiny. It would just be death and destruction. And if they, that's what Satan wants, because if they die, Satan has won. And so Jesus says to his disciples, this is my body given for you. I die, he says, so you don't die. So Satan has no claim on you. Satan has lost. Remember this as you eat the bread. What does that mean for their future? Well, Jesus says effectively, your sin, well, your sin is taken away. So I really am genuinely eager to eat with you. My disciples... I'm genuinely eager to eat with you in the kingdom of the God, in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says here, this cup is the, the new covenant I'm making. It's the solemn promise I'm making with you, my people. It's guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, because I've poured out my life for you. It's a promise sealed by my word, it's secured by sacrifice, it's written in my blood. Remember this as you drink the wine. Now there's much, much more we could uh, say about the Lord's Supper. And uh, you wouldn't believe that the, the amount that we could say about the Lord's Supper and the different ways that Christians have understood it. And in this year when we're celebrating 500 years of the, uh, before the beginning of the uh, Reformation. It's, a, it's a, I guess, sobering to remember that the Reformers differed with one another on this and sometimes quite sharply differed. Uh, but a couple of things we can say. 
The first is this. It's very, very clear here, isn't it, that the supper is all about Jesus. Now, that should be obvious, I guess, but it's important to remember the supper is all about Jesus and what he's done and what he is doing and what he will do. So any understanding of the Lord's Supper that um, without that focus on Jesus uh, should be treated with uh, uh, caution or even suspicion. So when people put too much focus on the ceremony or the, or the bread and the wine itself or the people serving the bread and the wine, for example, we'd want to be very cautious about that. And then secondly, just notice how, how serious this all is. So any understanding that takes the supper too lightly can also be ruled out. Uh, now, as it so happens, uh, we're not taking the Lord's Supper together tonight. It's just the way things have worked out. Uh, but we are taking it next week, in the evening next week. And it's actually uh, apparently, well, it's good Anglican practice to announce communion a week in advance and to encourage one another to be ready for it. So let me do that now. How can we be ready? How can we prepare for the Lord's Supper or communion next week? You might be asking yourselves, what should I be thinking about in the next days and on the day itself? Well, it would certainly be good to be thinking about the supper the way Luke presents it here. It's a gracious means to encourage us in faith, to encourage us in perseverance in faith. It's not merely a religious ceremony or a duty, and if it becomes so, it becomes empty and dangerous. It's given to us to help us, to help us in our belief. We're people who live by faith and not by sight, and as most of us know, that can be pretty hard sometimes. Uh, Jesus Christ, the one we trust, the object of our faith, is, is not physically with us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We can't see him or touch him. Can we really be sure that he loves us? Is our future with him really secure? And in those moments, we find ourselves crying out uh, to Jesus like the man in Mark chapter 9. I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Well, the supper is given to us to help us with that, to help us strengthen our faith connection with the Lord Jesus. And uh, one of the striking aspects of what we've been reminded of tonight is that it's not just a case of, of looking back to what Jesus has done and then being thankful. It's more than that. It's about looking back, seeing what Jesus has done, trusting him, and then looking forward, looking forward to the future with confidence, with that future guaranteed to the place where he greatly desires to eat with us in the kingdom of God. And so when it does come to next Sunday at this time, what should I be thinking then as I come up and take communion perhaps? Well, of course, thinking of Jesus, that should be obvious, I hope. But thinking is, is just a part of it, isn't it? The supper is much more than just a, a mental exercise, uh, we will be listening to the word preached next week, and that in itself will be an encouragement to our faith. But the supper expands the ways in which we encounter and connect by faith with Jesus and the truth of the gospel. It engages our other senses and emotions. Uh, the atmosphere of taking a shared meal together matters. 
The touch and taste of the bread matters. The taste of the wine on our lips matters. These things are gifts, and they're given to us to help us to remember the reality of Jesus deeply. Jesus' body given for us. He's died so that we don't die. Satan has no claim on us. Satan has lost. Let's remember this as we eat the bread. Our sin is taken away. Jesus is genuinely eager to eat with us, his disciples, in the kingdom of God. And the cup we'll drink together represents the new covenant that he's made, the solemn promises making with us, his people, to save us and keep us safe to the end as we trust in him. And that promise is guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, because he's poured out his life for us. It's sealed by his word. It's secured by sacrifice. It's written in his blood. Let's remember this as we drink the wine together next week. You might remember David Cameron, who, uh, when he was still prime minister, infamously forgot to take his daughter home after a pub lunch and uh, left her behind. Um, shouldn't be too hard on him. I know many families could tell uh, similar stories. We once set out on a three-week camping holiday to France, but forgot to take a tent. It's a true story. Uh, a great many of the cups of tea I make for myself I forget about. I make lots of tea, but don't actually drink very much. I discover them hours later, stone cold, and have to reheat them in the microwave. Then I discover them again the next day, still in the microwave, (laughs) stone cold again. We are forgetful people, but most of the Most of the time, it doesn't really matter that much, but there are some things that it's very dangerous to forget. Let me remind you one last time of the screw tape letters and that deceptive power of given to that to that man who'd just come out of the library seeing a newsboy shouting the midday paper, number 73 bus going past. It just makes him forget the possibility that just come to his mind. Let me remind you again that we too are vulnerable to the power and pressure of the ordinary. You know, we'll leave this meeting tonight and uh, go home into our cars, maybe on the bus, out into the streets. And it's all going to be so ordinary. Even more so tomorrow, swept up in the ordinariness of everyday life at home, at work, at school, at study. Just so ordinary. But unless we're careful, unless we're really careful, the ordinary is quite dangerous. It's quite deceptive. It kids us into thinking that this is all that matters, that this is all there is, all that's real. And slowly we forget the deeper realities. In particular, we forget Jesus. We forget who we are. And we forget where we're going. The question is, How are we going to remember? What's our strategy for remembering? Well, let's begin by praying.
Heavenly Father, I, I particularly want to pray for anyone here tonight uh, who's seen something of the reality of, of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. Uh, please, please don't let them go. Please hold on to them. Please have mercy. And uh, for the rest of us struggling to persevere in faith, uh, we do cry out to you tonight. We do believe, but please, please help our unbelief. Help us not to forget the realities. Help us not to forget Jesus in, under the pressure of the ordinary. Help us to remember deeply Jesus given for us, broken for us. And we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.